Welcome to Tell Me What to Say. I'm Drew Kugler. I often remind people that most of the work that we do is not about life and death. My guest today is a shining exception to that rule. I've been a fanboy of his writing, which grabbed me from the first time I picked up a book by him in 2007. Listen to this paragraph from a book called Better. Arriving at meaningful solutions is an inevitably slow and difficult process. Nonetheless, what I saw was better is possible. It does not take genius. It takes diligence. It takes moral clarity, and it takes ingenuity. And above all, it takes a willingness to try. I was fortunate enough to have Dr. Gawande agree to sit down with me in a conference room at the offices in which he does much of his research with his team called Ariadne Labs, which is just a few short blocks from Fenway Park and from Harvard University. In these conversations, he calls through the connection between his work, his life, and the conversations within. The recognition, though, that we arrived at, specifically during the interview, is that the right kind of conversations can indeed extend and at times save lives. And now, my conversation with Dr. Atul Gawande. So it strikes me that I met you, Atul, um, way before you met me. Uh, and that was through an article a friend had sent me uh, that was written about you in April 2007 when Better uh, came out. Hmm. And a gentleman was uh, following you or observing you in the surgical suite, commented both on the importance of your loops, first time I'd ever learned that word, but also went through uh, the thing that got my attention, and that was the list of music that you listened to in the suite, and you even commented that there were certain songs that you could play unless there was someone over the age of 45. <laughs> so uh, the thing that struck me and that has been one of the through I think I lines. I 65. It was a 45? It was 45, oh, okay. just for the record. Well, now, now they're, they're 45 after revised. <laughs> right. Yeah, have you changed your music? But that's a question for later. So uh, the, 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 the thing that struck me, though, and that got my attention and made me want to buy the book wasn't so much what the article talked about, but it was a fact that you were a Bruce Springsteen fan. Uh, and we have talked often since then. As I learned, about not, a, that. not a crazy Bruce Springsteen fan like you are. Well, but I am right. a big Bruce Springsteen fan. Yes. And you play Springsteen. By the way, if you had to pick a Springsteen song for surgery, what would it be? Hmm. Do you know what you play? You know, the. <laughs> Born to Run was the first thing that came to mind because it's the one I most often play in the operating room. But I'm not sure whether that's the theme you want, you know, that people listening want to be thinking about in a surgery. No, <laughs> but 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 from a kind of energy and an emotional point of view, it's totally midday. That's an awesome song. That's the song. Okay. You know, midday through a 10, 12 hour day. That's the one. Well, uh, I did go buy the book. Uh, and I, I, I could name all the post 9-11 songs or, or right. a tunnel of love, but right, they are even, even less thematic, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. But for all those reasons and it just being an interesting article, uh, it, did encourage, it did encourage me to go out and buy the book. 
<clears throat> and what I have known, noticed over the years, and something I want to talk about at some length today, is perhaps uh, an, un an unintended theme. I'll let you comment on that. But as I quickly, and I'd like to just jump through some of your writing, um, it is the, the jumping through, the theme that emerged as I thought about it, was actually the motivator for this podcast. Not this one, but of me stepping into the podcast world and having my, my theme. And the theme is the, the overarching effect that conversation has on our lives, for good or for bad. That's what this whole series of, conver of conversations is about. Now, let me explain what I mean. Uh, even before I knew you, you wrote a book called Complications. A doctor, uh, a woman doctor at UCLA mentioned that uh, when I was first getting into your writing. Uh, and she talked about the hand-washing um, article and the difficulty that people were having in communicating the importance of washing hands. Going on to better, to me, in a chapter that you actually recommended yourself to me that I read in order to help other people was the speech you gave to the graduates, the Positive Deviant article. And in two separate sections of that column, that speech, you encourage on one hand for people to stop complaining mm -hmm. and on the other hand for doctors to engage, if at all possible, for the benefit of the patient uh, in something you call the unscripted question. So there's more conversation. So that's just two for two. But go on to what I tell everyone that I work with is the best book on team communication, and that is the Checklist Manifesto. You have taught me and everyone, that, at least that has read the book that I know, as to the importance of pausing in conversation. In this case, a conversation that drives a surgical procedure. You talk about the importance of pause points. You also tapped into something, and a couple more minutes here, and I'll get your comment on any or all of it. You also tap into something that, quite frankly, clients have a great deal of difficulty with, and your writing makes it a little easier for them to understand in my world, is that people have to enter into their professional work with an, a certain mindset. The nurse that walks in to join that surgery has to believe that he or she is, the, is worthy, is valuable, has a point of view that is important to express if, if so called for. So the self-talk at that point has to be a very, very uh, positive and productive one. Then that's a style of conversation. It goes on. Uh, being mortal is perhaps, to me, the ultimate testimony to the importance of conversation, and I'll ask you more about that a little bit later. And since then, you've written about, again, the, uh, the value of people talking to people, not the importance or the, the, the efficacy of an app, but actually real conversation. People, as you said, people talking to people and people listening. So... Unintentional, I called the theme, but in hearing that, um, A, my, my first thought is, does that follow? Have you thought of it at ever in that way? And um, is that, does that make sense to you? 
Yeah, I've not thought of it as a recurrent theme, but I, but but hearing you lay it out, it makes a lot of sense to me because in each of those, um, for example, uh, the checklist uh, manifesto is about checklists, and you wouldn't think a uh, first of all, you wouldn't think you'd want to read about checklists. <laughs> Second of all, I wouldn't have thought that. Um, you could use checklists to cut death rates in surgery by half, um, especially when you know surgeons seem to be doing a good job to begin with, right? Um, and then third, you wouldn't imagine that what the checklist is really doing is it's not a tick box effort sitting in the corner of the room with a nurse going through, going check, check, check. Um, it's a conversation among a team of people who need to be aligned around what the goals of this operation are, what the special considerations are that each that someone might be aware of in the room, but others are not, and then agreeing on the direction that you're going to go forward um, uh, with. So, um, the as as I've as time has gone on um, and I've dove into, I've dived into everything from how do we understand our errors and our imperfections in medicine to how do we have our teams functioning better and better to how do we um, uh, successfully deliver care even at the most um, in the most difficult phase of people's lives when they are facing um, uh, the end of their life. Uh, the thing that I come back to again and again is that there is uh, at least two people, often more, who have to get clear about what are your goals and what are my goals and how do we get them into alignment. Um, and the basic story over and over again is there is tremendous suffering, whether in a surgical patient, a person at the end of life, or just a member of the team like me <laughs> trying to get good at what I do. There's tremendous suffering when, um, there is, when, when we have not had that discussion about what it is we are actually aiming for, what our priorities really are, and then are we um, in a relationship where we're we, we are actually pulling in the same direction? Mm -hmm. so, so in your experience of looking back across that, that spectrum of moments that patients and doctors and people face, do you have any, I don't call it a conclusion, but at least a working theory as to if we know it works by pausing, by having the what I call deliberate and intentional conversation. And most notably in a time of making perhaps difficult choices, why don't we do that more? Well, I think there's lots of reasons and I think it's different from situation to situation. So just to take two, um, we asked surgeons, nurses, anesthetists, the other people, who come together in an operating room to pause right before the patient's put to sleep just for one minute and then right before the in an incision's made for another minute and then before you leave the room with the patient for, an for the third minute. 
and pause and have a conversation about at this stage, what are the critical goals? Is there, there's a few things. Have we missed any of these key, um, uh, approach, key steps to stop big killers like infection or bleeding or unsafe anesthesia? And, um, and are there any special considerations that the patient's health history or um, own condition suggests that they should have? When we asked people to do that, um, they didn't like it. <laughs> First of all, they thought, this is idiotic. We already know what we're doing. We've been doing this over and over for, we've done thousands of these operations. We know what we're doing. Uh, second, um, it is, there's a set of values just by starting to have that conversation that, that are in contrast to the ones that we normally have. So, um, let me unpack that, um, if it's okay. The, the, um, the usual values you have in healthcare and maybe in other lines of work is that, um, the way, certainly the way the doctor thinks about it is our highest value is autonomy, that in the operating room it is built as a place where the assumption is the best thing for the patient is to, be, um, is to see the, the surgeon as the customer. So whatever the surgeon wants, that's what matters. The checklist that we designed around what the big killers are say actually the surgeon's not the customer here, the patient is. And all of us have a piece of the care for that patient, and the surgeon is definitely important, but so is the anesthesiologist, the nurse, and even the medical student has things to offer that are, could be life-saving. And, and, the, and the values that get expressed just by having a, a, a planned conversation where we all know we're going to stop to talk, those values are, instead of autonomy, it's humility, um, that, that I know that um, no matter how great I am as a surgeon, no matter how much experience, no matter how well pedigreed, there will be mistakes, things can go wrong and will go wrong. Second uh, is discipline, a belief in doing certain things the same way every time, that that, um, uh, that, that reduces the likelihood that something goes wrong. And the third is that uh, is teamwork, the belief that anybody in the room can know things and add something that will make things better. Um, and that expression is causes some conflict for people. Mm -hmm. So long story short, in the setting of an operating room, the reasons why people can have a lot of discomfort with it is it's pushing against their assumptions and values about how things are supposed to work. They think they're great already, um, and much of what can go wrong is often invisible to people. We have, we have a 98% or better chance for a typical hospital operation that, um, that the person will survive and that um, uh, uh, you know, it's even up to 99%, right? But when we do 30 million operations a year, 15 million operations a year in hospitals, uh, you're talking about a, you're talking about 150,000 dead per year mm. um, and, uh, and at least half avoidable. And, and that's what we found is that uh, you impose that discipline and we can, uh, we can get markedly better results. Yeah. So go on to the 
next book, and I'm going to ask you specifically about the Mass General research that talks about uh, people's, uh, you talked about this on Charlie Rose and really surprised him, uh, that work through the 25% getting better, and then allow me a a follow-up on that, because I'm deeply curious about this one. Well, so this was, uh, my book Being Mortal was prompted by both my father being diagnosed with a brain tumor, but having many, many patients where, um, as a cancer surgeon, where I would be responsible for trying to have a discussion about what is the, um, what's our plan now when a complication has arisen from a potentially terminal condition or um, the disease is simply advancing. And finding that these are incredibly aversive experiences, uh, conversations that neither the patient likes nor the doctors like. Um, And there was a study at the Mass General Hospital of patients who had stage four lung cancer. So Mm -hmm. all of them died. The average length of survival from the time of diagnosis was 11 months. And they decided to agree to a study that the patients were randomized to, to half of them receiving the usual oncology care and the other half receiving the usual oncology care plus a visit with a palliative care specialist. Now, palliative care is a field where they focus on improving your quality of life, and we usually think of that as something that you do in the end stages. Um, and so as a uh, seeing this study, it was striking to me because someone saying, hey, you know, maybe I'll get a palliative care clinician involved. Um, the common response we would have is, oh, no, 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 no. It's it's not time for that. We still have options. And um, instead, this study said, have a palliative care clinician involved from the very beginning of diagnosis, um, focusing on the quality of life and not just the quantity of life. The result was that the group who got that um, additional step uh, had outcomes, well, first of all, they, the, the patients had less suffering, less anxiety, less depression, less pain. Um, they were more likely to choose to stop getting aggressive care, such as continuing chemotherapy, um, with less than half receiving, uh, so dropping by half the number of people who were on chemotherapy in the last two months of life. Um, that group uh, spent less, 30% less money, were less likely to die in the hospital, less likely to die in the ICU, had more time at home, started hospice sooner, and the kicker was they lived 25% longer, which meant that there was something the palliative care clinicians were doing that not only improved their quality of life and lowered their costs, but also improved their quantity of life, or at least didn't worsen it along the way. And I went interviewing people to say, okay, what is this yeah, thing? That's my question, right? Yeah, what is this thing? And, you know, it's at the very beginning, and I thought, well, maybe they're getting more pain medicine or maybe they're getting antidepressants or things like that. But no, they, at the beginning of diagnosis, they didn't have that many symptoms. They weren't, they weren't getting more medications for symptoms and things like that. It was just a conversation. They were having a conversation with the palliative care clinician about their goals for their treatment besides just survival. What do they want to live for? What are they willing to go through and not willing to go through for the sake of more time? What's the minimum quality of life they'd find acceptable? Um, 
Are do do you want to get to Disney with your grandkids? Are you trying to get a project that you want to get done done? Whatever happens, you know your your health may worsen. What are your priorities? And mm -hmm. if and knowing those, let's make sure our care is aligned with those priorities. And I realized I wasn't doing that, and I needed to learn how to do that, how to have that conversation because it's not as simple as just what are your priorities. It's a conversation. Yeah. Are you better at that now? Much. Much. I still have a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah. So this, I'm, I'm intrigued by the question you were intrigued by, but for a different reason. Am I hearing you conclude that um, the conversations occurring or versus not occurring actually were the causes for the 25% lengthening of the life well so um we don't actually know except that we have um you know th there have been multiple studies now including some that we've performed where we have made that the focus let us focus on teaching clinicians how to have a more effective conversation with somebody who is seriously ill with a life-limiting condition. And it's a whole frame shift that I had to learn, which is that I'm used to thinking my job as a clinician is give you the facts. Uh, I am, you know, my role is to be doctor informative. <laughs> here are the, here's what I know about your condition. Here are the options. Here is option A, option B, option C, the pros, the cons, the risks, the benefits. Now, what do you want? And then you tell me what you want. And um, invariably, what people would say when I'd ask that question is they would say, well, what would you, what would you recommend? And then what I was taught to say is, really, and actually taught to say this, is to say, no, 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 no. This is for you to decide. Only you can know you, and, and I'm here to provide information. And the flip that the palliative care doctors, and it turns out the geriatricians and, and others put in, is to say, no, your job is to be a counselor. Your job is to learn what people's goals are in their life and then match what we are capable of medically against the reality of their condition to help them achieve those goals insofar as they can. And so the, uh, the conversation flips to saying, I need to learn to elicit from you uh, what are the most important priorities for your life, even if your health worsens? Mm. And, uh, you know, just besides survival. And then let us maximize fitting. I can make a recommendation then, knowing what I know about all of those options and which one might be the best fit. And that conversation, um, we have some preliminary data. We, we have rolled it out of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and showed market improvements in depression and anxiety in our preliminary data um, and, uh, and market, the conversations are happening more, they're happening earlier, and they're better conversations aligning the care more closely to people's goals. Mm. So if you go back to what you said, and I, I found, the, I found the, the quote about the teamwork uh, and humility, uh, and in the middle of that quote in 2011, you posited the notion of the resistance to values, right? 
And you said, you talked about resistance, sometimes vehement resistance to change efforts are rooted in different values than the ones we've had, as you explained. My question is I compare the being mortal findings to the checklist findings. Is there more resistance, vehement as it may become at times, is there more resistance to doctors learning about these new conversations rather the, versus the resistance that you saw to the change in the surgical suite? I don't think we know yet. In both cases, there is a generational difference uh, with that we are observing as this rolls out. And partly it's that people um, who are more experienced get set in their ways mm-hmm. and, and, are, and are comfortable where they are and aren't looking for um, – uh, making a change, whereas you know a younger generation will still be finding their way and and um, have some uncertainties and wanting to be build want to build on on what's there. Um, I think though that um, there's the resistance is different. Um, the The thing that happens there's a switch that happens when you have the conversation about um, uh, someone's goals when they are they have a serious life limiting condition. And that's that when you learn to do it, it turns what is a aversive conversation where you feel like you are across the table from the patient having an argument and the patient is thinking, what are they trying to tell me they don't want to give me? Right? It's, it always feels like the normal conversation we have with people who are coming to the end of life is, is do you want to fight or do you, do you want to give up? We never want to put it that way, so we say things like, can we make you comfortable, you know, do all these things. But what's heard is my patient, my, my doctor's telling me to give up. And, and, and then you think the doctor's not on my side. When, in fact, what you want to have is a conversation that says, we're going to fight. What do you want us to fight for? To have the best possible day you can today, regardless of the consequences tomorrow? Or to potentially even sacrifice your day today and how you feel today for the sake of possible time in the future. And, and, and what is it that a really good day is for you? And how do we help make that happen? And maybe, you know, how do we make both these things happen? Have as many days with that best possible day mm-hmm. in front of you. And you suddenly have the switch to being next to the person now. We're on the same side. And you don't want to go back. So the, the experience of teaching people uh, how to do this kind of conversation is that it's a jarring change. It's a different way. You have to ask different kinds of questions like, what are your fears if your health worsens? What are your goals if time is short? People cry in your office. It makes you uncomfortable at first. And then suddenly you find it's one of the most gratifying experiences that you have as a, as a clinician. I never expected that I, one of my most gratifying experiences would be as a clinician having a conversation with people where we decided not to do surgery and we felt we accomplished something. And, um, and finding that you could be good at this actually feels good. Mm-hmm. Now, the surgery checklist um, is one where, you know, you run through it. It's a – the team gets more aligned. Everybody's pointed in the right direction. But on any given day, you have a, you have a less than 1% chance that anything terrible will go wrong. And so, um, so, and so you don't notice the value add until you add it up over the course of time. 
And then, you know, a, if, if you've cut the death rate by half, you just don't feel it. There is some ways in which the team feels like it's functioning better and that can kind of keep it going. But it's very easy for the habit to go away if someone on the team, especially if a surgeon on the team, um, uh, sort of, you know, dismisses it and mm-hmm. disregards it. You can see it decay. Um, and so you have to reinforce it and keep it going. But but what we saw, we, we, ju- we just rolled out in the state of South Carolina over the last, over, over about three years, with the hospitals across the state. Um, for 40% of the population, the hospitals were able to take it up, walked through the process that we suggest for implementing, including how to deal with um, surgeons when they push back. And they successfully reduced the death rate 22% for 40% of the population in the state. Now there's 60% though, where they couldn't walk through that process. And, uh, and that reflects, I think, some of this resistance. So what we're experiencing right now is we've got a approach, a, an innovation, a process innovation that successfully cuts deaths, even at population scale, by almost a quarter in surgery. But, um, uh, but, but people aren't screaming, knocking down the door for it. We have to go out and sell it. The conversation and right. how to have the serious illness conversation, patients, families, and clinicians are banging down our door. Uh, we, we can't keep up with teaching it appropriately, learning how to teach it appropriately, learning how to support it at, at large scale fast enough. Mm. We're, we are, we're, we're moving as fast as we can to make yeah. that happen. There's a, a professor here at Harvard that commented in a book called Difficult Conversations years ago. His name's Doug Stone. And he talked about something that has certainly changed my work, and it may provide some explanatory power to what you just said. I'll take a shot. He said that the biggest challenge that we have when we go into a difficult conversation in the past is we go in with the wrong purpose. We go in believing at our quote-unquote worst, most ineffective, is that we are there to deliver a message. That is our job. So that completely, because that's our mindset, that completely affects how we show up to the conversation. He asks his readers, and it really shifted my thinking, which you've heard some about, um, that what if we went into the conversation to hear the other person's story, to get them to talk? And what you just outlined strikes me as that embraced. When you go in to get people to use the checklist, it's more about maybe it's the hospital administration. Maybe it's more of here's what we need to do to improve our surgical outcomes. Whereas when you and your colleagues are getting your doors busted down to, because you're entering to get other people to tell their story, that just struck me as you were telling that story is that I wonder, because I certainly hear about this across my clients, is that people won't listen about change. People resist it. Um, What if more people walked into more rooms trying to get other people, the people who you want to help and to go through change, to get them to talk, right? Yes. I think this is is key. If you go into one of the things that – we end up uh, 
here's, here's the difference is there's a difference in the power of the surgeon who is the person who resisted in this case and the patients who are in the conversation that we're trying to have in, mm-hmm. uh, in serious illness. Um, in both cases, you're trying to get a larger group, group of people to have a voice. Um, the, the patients are, and, and the aim is not just that they have a voice. What, I, what, what you go into the conversation trying to do instead of just giving information is trying to go in saying, what are your goals? And trying to see whether, where we align around the goals we're trying to achieve. Um, and so it's often, I found myself going into conversations much more around my, my top priorities to mm-hmm. figure out how to create alignment. And alignment requires my hearing you and, and about what you care about and, and where you're coming from. So with selling to surgeons, so to speak, this thing we want them to do, we're trying to sell them on the idea that they already have a voice in the operating room. Right. It's allowing other people to have their voice. And so trying to sell them on the idea that you already got a voice. Can you let other people have the voice in the operating room? And then why? And, uh, and then I need to know what aligns with your goals. And so the, the powerful thing that we had to ask people to do in South Carolina is number one, get a surgeon to be on your team for implementation. Um, one of our, uh, one of our gateways, toll gates, so to speak, is that we would ask teams to send a picture of your team with a surgeon and anesthesiologist and nurse and a, and a, and a hospital leader on the team. Um, and right there, you lose about half of them. <laughs> Just to get the picture and get people together, find a champion um, who would be willing to come in from all of the different components. Um, and then that group, we ask them to go talk to, because surgeons are often the main source of resistance, go talk to every surgeon one-on-one. And then go in and just ask them, will you help me? And that opens a conversation where you can really find out where people aligned. One of the things that we, we don't go in saying is here are the facts about how great this thing is. And we know that you know if you just use this, you'd get, you'd get better results. Partly because every surgeon thinks we're above average. <laughs> um, and all our polling indicated that, uh, that you know, there's going to be 20 to 30 percent who really resist and don't think it's a, they think it's a waste of their time. It's not going to make anything better. But then the other thing we found in our surveys was if you ask them, um, I know you're great, but what do you think about your colleagues? Ninety-five <laughs> percent mm. of the surgeons would want the checklist used if they were the patient. Mm-hmm. And so going in to say, would you help us with making this place better, to be the kind of place where you would want to be the patient, you're, you're willing to be the patient on the table. Yeah. You bring many more on board. And when we ask, will you help me, you get three kinds of reactions. One is, uh, wow, I've been interested in this, absolutely. And they become one of your champions. Or they say, yeah, okay. I'll try it. And they try it. Or they at least don't go on the war path against you. <laughs> right. They're like, yeah, okay, f- fine. I'm not really going to help. But in fact, they're helping because they've decided not to go on the attack. Right. Can you, the war path doctors, um, it raises a larger question, a, a, a general one about trying to help people change or, or, or influence them. 
What do you do generally, whether it's giving advice to a patient or giving or, or inviting a doctor to try the checklist when you know that they're not going to do it, when you know it hasn't landed? What do you do next? Well, I think the one thing is to understand there are early adopters, middle adopters, and late adopters. And you want to start with your early adopters. When you get through your middle adopters, when you get to two-thirds, half or two-thirds, and you've gotten great results, you have the you have the credibility now to say, look, this is just the rules. And if you go in and do that as the very first thing you do, you've killed off all the energy and the learning and the adapta- adaptation that the early and the middle adopters do to make things work and make it better. Um, so one of the critical things is just not to expect that you can do the Big Bang and everybody's going to do it. You have to go in expecting you're starting with your um, your early most forgiving group <laughs> and walk your way through and adapt and, and figure out what works to make the ideas actually fit into their work and into whatever they're trying to do. Similarly with patients, there's about 10%, five or 10% of patients have really serious denial. Like they, they, they don't recognize and don't, aren't really capable of recognizing how bad things have gotten and where they really are. Mm. And sometimes it's the patient and sometimes it's a family member. And in those cases, you can actually do damage trying to, um, trying to force them like, you know, you're going to die. <laughs> right. It doesn't, it, all you've done is lost their trust and, um, uh, and traumatized them. And, uh, and those are the situations where you actually, you know, we, we tell the clinicians, this is a situation where you need the palliative care experts, the people who have dealt with this over and over again. And, um, and it, requires incredible nuance and patience and deciding and, and, and the art of, you know, some, uh, gentle pushing, but sometimes having an outsider come in and be the bad guy trying to say, you know, trying to test some of these messages and see what, what reality they, they, whether they can deal with what you're trying to do is have people recognize the cognitive dissonance that they're experiencing between what happened yesterday and what happened the day before that, what happened to the day before that, and what they're saying happens. And sometimes they lash out by saying, I hate you, and you know, I don't want to ever want to see this person again. And that's fine if it's the outsider coming in. Yeah. That's sometimes what you, you have to do. Yeah. Wow. One last question. Yeah. So at most interviews that I've seen you do, uh, at least uh, one other podcast I listen to, and then also one of your television appearances, Everybody starts off by talking about how busy you are, <laughs> and they regale you with your 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 multi uh, uh, the many many tasks that you face. Um, however, I know you uh, as as the following: I know you as a, a surgeon. I know you as the the the, the head of this organization, uh, Ariadne Labs. Uh, I know you also as a father of three and a husband. And you and I have at the same time had long talks about the importance of uh, uh, hard conversations. So across your ma- your roles, where are the hardest conversations? 
that for you personally? Well, I'm conflict averse, as you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm I I want to go where things are. I want to keep going. One of the mantras in surgery is um, don't go where it's hard, go where it's easy. And you may, may never have to go anywhere hard. <laughs> it may turn out that everything turns out easy along the way. Right. Um, and so that I like that mantra. <laughs> and I don't know that it is uh, any um, different, a conflict in a relationship with, um, you know, an editor um, about where I'm trying to take a piece or a book I'm writing or um, a member of the research staff where things are, we're not in alignment anymore. Any, any time I'm not in alignment with somebody else um, and, we're, and we need to work together, it almost doesn't matter. It could be a life on the line in an operating room. It could be just trying to get a, a manuscript out the door. You would think in the operating room that would be a more tense, more upsetting position, but emotionally, um, it actually is much the same that, um, if there's something I really care about at stake and we can't seem to, and, and, and we're butting heads and, and we're, we're not pulling in the same direction. We're pulling in opposite directions. Um, uh, and, and I, and I don't know how to get it so that we're back into pulling in the same direction. That's what keeps me up at night. Yeah. More than anything else. Yeah. Have you gotten better at those conversations? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, you've, you've given me a lot of tips along the way. Yeah. Uh, and some of it is simply recognizing that you need to have the conversation that when you are butting heads, that's an opportunity and step back for a minute and plan for a conversation and name the fact that, Hey, we're butting heads and, and, then uh, begin to probe why. why. Where are we not in alignment here? You know, I'm confused. I think I, I'm pushing for this. I think you're pushing for that same thing. And yet we seem to be going in a different direction, in, not in the same direction. Why is that? And getting genuinely curious about that, um, I feel like is the thing you keep bringing back. Yep. yep. And, uh, and it works. And it works, and it you know, it it deescalates the the uh, the tension in the situation. Yeah. When I tell people about uh, people come to learn about you and read the bio, the thing I think that they're most people I talk to that are most thrown is how do you fit in uh, being a dad to all that other work you do. Well, so don't. my wondering is because I thought your answer would be. At least I believe mine are the hardest conversations uh, are with kids because you want them to be in alignment at times, but you also know, as somebody once said, you're a hundred percent responsible for making them understand that they're a hundred percent responsible. So, do you see a difference between talking to somebody about something difficult at work or in the surgical suite? versus talking to your kids? Well, will, are those the most frustrating conversations I have? Yes. Hard, right? However, But we I don't come know that they're, my, they're the hardest because um, they're frustrating. You know, I'm constantly reminding myself, 
I'm just waiting for their frontal lobe to, cl- to click in. I'm just <laughs> waiting for the frontal lobe to click in <laughs> because it's, it's like I've got A plus B plus C and they're reporting that that adds up to dog. Like it's like, I don't even know what, what we're, what we're doing. Like we're, 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 we can't even begin to talk about goals and alignment. You know, it's like the, the pieces there. aren't coming together. Right. And, uh, and so it's being willing to be patient and trust in the fact that, that it'll be fine and they will get there and, you know, let them make their mistakes. And, right. uh, and so the hardest part of those conversations is lining with my wife around how we handle this because we don't approach it in the same way all the time. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. The tool. Thank you to say the least. Um, I hope this has given uh, my listeners, so to speak, some insights into, into somebody uh, who's had an enormous influence on how I think about my work uh, and how many people around the world. I'm, I finally am able to now tell people uh, when they say, you know, this stuff isn't life or death. So it, you know, we can figure it out. It's nice to know that when it comes to life or death conversations uh, and doing them with, del- with, with deliberate and intentional focus and purpose, uh, I, you've taught me a lot about that. So I thank you here, uh, and I look forward to our future conversations. And I thank you, Drew, for the conversations we've had and will continue to have. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tell Me What to Say. If you like this podcast, remember to subscribe on your podcast service. And if you really like it, that is really like it, give it the highest rating you can because that will help the cause toward better conversations. For more information about the work that I do, please visit drewkugler.com. And for more background about the show and its guests, you can go to kuglercast.com. Until next time, this is Drew Kugler.